Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your usual host. Today's episode, though, is part one of an interview that Chase DeMarco, who hosts the Medical Nemonist podcast, that's Nemonist, spelled like mnemonics, focused on study hacks and accelerated learning techniques. He's actually hosting this episode um, and going to become one of the usual hosts of the Inside the Boards podcast. You can check out his new podcast, The Medical Nemonist, by clicking the link in the show notes or searching Medical Nemonist on your favorite podcatchers. We just got back from AMSA's 2019 convention, had a chance to go out and meet some students, uh, meet some other uh, companies in the space, and it was a really good time. Uh, we're going to feature here a clip from a mini interview that Elizabeth did with one of these students we met at AMSA. We want to thank AMSA for allowing us to, to get out there, meet students, record some live content, and thank Elsevier who provided us some books, Step 2 Secrets and Crush Step 1, for a giveaway um, that we handed out. You can check out our Instagram and other social profiles. Twitter's at Boards Insider, Instagram and Facebook at Inside the Boards, uh, just to see kind of what we did and, um, you know, comment, follow us. We got out there, had some great conversations, and hope next year that we'll be able to see you there as well. News on our audio cue bank. All right, so finally, finally. And actually, I had a student come up and say, hey, you've been saying this audio cue bank app is going to come out for like months and months. And I was uh, sheepishly in agreement because it's true. But, but, listen to this. We actually have submitted the iOS beta app to Apple's App Store. And I guess per usual, this sort of thing, um, you submit and they come back and say, hey, you need to tweak this or change that. And we've done a few rounds of that over the past week. But literally any day, our iOS beta app will actually and truly be out. For those of you who have already subscribed, thank you so much. It supports us. It helped us actually go to AMSA, for instance. Uh, it helps us continue the work on this podcast and to provide high-yield, free meted for you. For those who have not yet subscribed, our all-audio QBank is one of a kind. We feature audio-optimized questions in Step 1, thanks to Exam Circle and Lecturio. And for step two, thanks to online meded. You can learn on the go while you're driving, exercising, doing the dishes, whatever you have to do in life. We hope by releasing this product and continuing to think of ways to um, create other products that we will help you save time and redeem some of it so that you have uh, the ability to do other things in life, like spend time with your family exercise without guilt, just kind of the stuff to have a well-balanced life so that your career and life in medicine will continue and you will be fulfilled throughout it rather than frustrated and burnt out. I know it's not like the one solution, but it's a solution that we can or we hope uh, can help you. Right now, go to InsideTheBoards.com if you haven't subscribed. Take the leap. Please support us. As well as now, you can get introductory pricing on the All Audio QBank. Click the link in the show notes 
or go to insidetheboards.podbean.com. Anyone who signs up will get double the length of their subscription access at a much lower price. Uh, but this is going to go away like literally any day. We're going to be closing down that channel, phasing it out. Uh, but it's pretty cheap. One month, 15 bucks. Three months, 30. Six months, 50. One year, 100. Sign up, take advantage of it, but do so ASAP because we'll be phasing it out. You can go to insidetheboards.com, sign up for our email list, and we will be sending you some premium discounts on uh, various MedEd partners that we've connected with, um, as well as notify you of when the iOS beta app does launch, and keep you updated for the full-scale version of our app, which... I hesitate to make predictions given my track record, but it's looking like it's on track for an end of May release. So sign up for our email list to stay updated. Here's a little segment from AMSA and then Chase's interview. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Check out the Study Smarter series for step two and step one um, that'll be launching on the Study Smarter podcast. We find it a pleasure and a joy to serve you, you and your educational needs and are so honored that you take the time to listen to us and support us. So rock on, study hard. Here's the real part of today's show. Welcome back, Boards Insiders. We have Joshua Wilms with us, and we're at the AMSA 2019 convention in Washington, D.C. Joshua is a third-year student at Texas Tech University. He's an MD-PhD student, so he has a lot going on, and he's already taken step one. And he's been through the entire AMSA conference, so he has lots of things to talk about. Our first question for Joshua today is, how do you balance doing an MD and a PhD? That's a lot. Well, so you don't do both of them at the same time. Otherwise, okay. I mean, that, that would be impossible for me. Okay. Um, I mean, to anybody who is an MD, PhD getting started, um, when I started out, I tried to do research uh, for part of my first year. That was a bad idea. When you're in med school, I really think you should just focus on medical school. That is more than enough. If you have extra time, take a nap or, you know, go on a walk, you know, take a break instead of on top of medical school, trying to study, getting ready for board exams and be like, oh, I'm going to continue with like a little bit of pre-med syndrome and try to, you know, get as many gold stars as I can by doing some bonus research. I, I think that's just the recipe for not being able to do well on either. Yeah. Okay. So I would say just do medical school during your medical school years, research during the summer, and then do your PhD during your PhD years. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, what's the benefit of doing the MD PhD program for you? What kind of made you do that? Well, it impresses the ladies. <laughs> um, so I want to do um, research on Alzheimer's long term. And my odds of being able to contribute meaningfully to that field uh-huh. increases if I have both a medical background and um, rigorous sci- training and research. So I, I mean, I could do I could do research on Alzheimer's as a PhD uh-huh. or as an MD, but um, if I do both, I just feel that I'll have the most training and the most potential for um, making a difference in that field. That's awesome. Okay. So you could really research is your big focus though. Yeah. All right. So 
do you feel like the medical side of things, I mean, is it still interesting to you? Are you still thinking as a clinical per Like, are you going to do some kind of clinical practice, or does this feel like a checkbox? Yes. Um, so I'll definitely do a little bit of clinical practice, but I'll primarily um, focus on research because I want to focus on Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative diseases. Right now, there isn't that much that I could do in the clinic. Um, I mean, there are a few medications that can delay symptoms, can provide some symptomatic relief, but ultimately, if somebody gets Alzheimer's right now, at some point, the medication isn't going to be able to help anymore, and it's just going to be a slow downhill trend for them. So really, um, to be for me to be a clinician who wants to help patients with Alzheimer's means that I need to do research to find out how to help them. Okay, so you but you really do want to do both. You, yes. You do. Okay. And tell me about your study habits. Like, you've already taken step one. You don't have to tell me anything about how uh -huh. it went. But tell uh -huh. me how you studied for it. So, I use the standard research material. Texas Tech is really nice in that they buy us a lot of those materials and give them to us free of charge. Okay. But so, you know, I use first aid, sketchy, anky, delayed re repetition flashcards. Any medical student should probably know about Anki okay. and be using it. All right. Oh, Brosencephalon? Yeah. Oh, I know yep. Brosencephalon. Yeah, I, I don't use... think that was a thing, though, when I was in med school. Yeah, I use Bros deck. There are a lot of other good decks out there, too. So first aid and... Yeah. So I... New world, obviously. Yeah, of course. All the pathoma, all the, all the classic stuff. Inside so... the boards now. Yeah. Now. So I studied hard and spent a lot of time studying. But apart from that, I made sure I got sleep because sleep is essential for remembering things. What's the minimum? What do you think your minimum is you got to get? Okay, I, I would get seven or eight hours of sleep a night. And I don't think that sleep is ever wasted time because the days when I, like over the long term, first year of medical school, I did not get enough sleep. Okay. I, even, I pulled all-nighters regularly before exams, and that would sort of short-term help me uh -huh. on that exam. But then long-term, I forgot much of that material. And med school isn't about short-term doing well on individual exams. It's about long-term improving a whole body of knowledge so that whenever you're studying, you retain it long-term, and then all of that builds up on itself and really helps you when it comes to, say, step one. Right, and then eventually clinical practice, hopefully, right? Hopefully yeah. some of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, and of some course of clinical practice. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's so far down the road. Yeah. So, all right, fair enough. So for the sleeping the night before the exam, what you're saying is even if you feel like a couple hours I could cram some more stuff in, the sleep itself is more beneficial for you to be able to perform well the next yes. day. Yes. Okay. And how exhausted were you after step one? I was so exhausted. What did you uh, do? Oh, my goodness. I played a lot of video games. I uh, took my dogs on walks. I went to the beach. In my room, there was a noisemaker, though, where it was like ocean waves coming in and out. And I had that for a couple... It was on for a couple of sections and um, actually really annoying. But then, So when I got to the beach and I was trying to relax out on a balcony and I heard the waves coming in and out, I just got so triggered, and it brought me back to you step one. I was PTSD. like, oh, no. You had a little step one PTSD? Uh, yeah. So now the beach has been ruined for me. <laughs> oh, God. That should be a question on the interview. What's the best thing that medical school ruined for you uh -huh. already? 
Oh my gosh. Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's the beach. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, coffee. Coffee. I uh, yeah, I used to really enjoy coffee, and now it's I, I I maybe it's because I transitioned to just drinking black coffee, and then it would get cold, and then I just drink the cold black coffee, not ice cold, lukewarm. So now it's gross. Yeah. So now maybe part of that's just because I was drinking it functionally. What do you think is a study habit or a study tip that would be something that makes you study differently? Like our little theme, study different. Do you have any kind of quirky habits or um, anything you do? I would go on walks with my dogs while doing Anki. So that would uh, keep me awake. My dogs would like see a squirrel and pull me a little bit. So whenever I got tired or um, maybe later in the day when I wasn't focusing so well, I would... Um, get my Anki deck and I would turn on voice the voice function so that okay. it would read the flashcards to me. Uh-huh. And then I would go do something active, whether that was uh, walking on a treadmill, walking outside, getting on a stationary bike. Okay. So the times when I wanted to keep studying, but it felt like if I sat at my desk, I would maybe fall asleep or I would daydream. Yeah. Then I would do something active. That's a great study advice. That's the whole philosophy why we made Inside the Boards this audio question bank is because oh, nice. we know people are, like, you can only do so much of sitting at your desk or, like, kind of melting into the couch reading yeah. a book. All right. Um, that's awesome. And then I also made, um, so there's no uh, sketchy memory palaces for biochemistry yet. Okay. So um, I actually mapped out the majority of biochemistry from first aid. In um, a set of memory palaces. What do you have them written down? Um, I have a f- I have maybe half of them on YouTube, and then the other ones I have in my notes, and I haven't made videos on yet. Where can people find those on YouTube? It's uh, Forget Me Not Biochemistry. Forget Me Not Biochemistry. Yeah. All right. Okay. I've got three or four videos on there. It's a tiny one. Okay, that's um, but that sounds awesome. If yeah, then we can't get anywhere else. But biochemistry was one of the hardest things for me to learn. Um, so I really focused on that when I was studying for step one, and that ended up being one of my best subjects. Okay, really easy to remember, just because I had these memory palaces. Good. All right. Well, thank you. That's a great tip for our listeners. Anything else that you would like to give as a closing piece of advice for people in medical school or people considering an MD PhD program? First off, focus on your relationships with other people. School matters. Getting gold stars on your resume matters. You know, matching into a good residency matters. But what matters a lot more than that is maintaining good relationships with the people in your life. Whether that's your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your mom, your dad, brothers, sisters. Those are the things that most people find out that are what matters to them the most in the long run. And then those are also the things that end up allowing you to do well. Okay. I think that's excellent advice for wellness and just having a well-rounded, well-balanced life. All right. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. If you have questions about research statistics, medical society guidelines, or the ins and outs of clinical trials and drug safety, stay tuned for a great interview. But first, here's something from our all-new Step 2 Audio Q-Bank, powered by Online MedEd. Alexa, teach me family medicine. A hospital researcher wants to validate her screening test for HIV. She tests it on a group of 1,000 prisoners, with a known HIV prevalence of 10%. She performs the same screening test 
on a group of 1,000 undergraduates, with a known HIV prevalence of 2%. Which of the following is true of the screening test characteristics? Is it, A. The negative predictive value, will be higher in the group of undergraduates, compared to the group of prisoners. B. The positive predictive value, will be higher in the group of undergraduates, compared to the group of prisoners. C. The sensitivity of the HIV screening test, will be lower in the group of undergraduates, compared to the group of prisoners. Or is it answer choice, D. The specificity of the HIV screening test, will be higher in the group of undergraduates, compared to the group of prisoners. And the correct answer is, Choice A, the negative predictive value will be higher, in the group of undergraduates. Sensitivity and specificity, are intrinsic properties of a screening test. In other words, the sensitivity and specificity of a test, will be the same, regardless of the group it is used on. However, the positive and negative predictive values, are dependent on the disease prevalence. In other words, the same test, can have different positive and negative predictive values, based on the disease prevalence in a group. Building the two by two tables, will bring you to the same conclusion. Remembering these characteristics of screening tests, will save you time on the test. And just as a reminder, positive predictive value, is the probability of disease in a patient, with a positive test result. Prevalence and PPV are directly related, if one goes up, so does the other. Negative predictive value, is the probability of no disease in a patient with a negative test result. Prevalence and NPV are inversely related, if one goes up, the other goes down. In the question, undergraduates have lower prevalence, therefore a lower PPV and a higher NPV. On today's show, we will cover evidence-based medicine and medical myths with Dr. James McCormick. Dr. McCormick is a PharmD, professor at the University of British Columbia, and the host of the BS or Best Science Medicine podcast, which has been a long-running science and medicine podcast running since about 2008. He's also the publisher of dozens of books, papers, and lectures on the topics of medicine and medical research. Dr. McCormick, how are you doing today? Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to just chat with pretty much anyone who listens to the concepts of evidence and healthcare and trying to put it into context. No, this is perfect. There are so many misconceptions about what the evidence is, says, what, what is the difference between an RCT versus uh, medical society guidelines and clarifying these for the students and any other listeners would be very, very helpful. Yeah, so as you were mentioning, so some of the stuff that I try to do, and I've been doing this for a long, long time, is how do we how do we get, I guess, any healthcare provider, and in fact, any healthcare provider or any patient, which is pretty much everybody in the world, how can we get them to be more, or to have a better appreciation for evidence and put it into the context? And so, uh, as you mentioned, I, I do a weekly podcast and we publish lots of different papers and uh, as much as possible, trying to get uh, people to think about what to do with the evidence, because as you know, as I've looked at it, and maybe you can be, I'm happy to have you contact, uh, talk about it. There's a lot of BS out there. And how do we, how do we figure out what is, you know, real BS and what's, uh, not BS and that sort of stuff. And, you know, a lot of stuff that I focus on is just, is just the concepts of evidence-based practice. 
and even though a lot of people can, you know, there are people who say that you know, there are, they have problems with things like evidence-based practice or evidence-based medicine, I, I think it provides a, a, a proper approach to think about things. And I, I actually don't know how people can argue against it. I mean, certainly in talking to, when you talk to patients and you go, you know, do you think we should use the best available evidence? Most people say, yeah, I assumed you were already doing that. You know, but that's not always the case. We seem to to find out. Well, well no, and 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 so that's where it gets tricky. And I think it, it may be worth, you know, if we're going to talk about evidence and evidence based practice, I think we have to have a, a common definition because so that you and I are both talking about the same thing. I mean, so I think the definition that most people use, and I think it works very very well, is that you know it is using the best available evidence, and the, and the best available evidence may be none. And I think it's incredibly powerful. To, when we know there is not much evidence at all, that's a very powerful thing to know because then it opens up all opportunities to say, you know, we, we, there's a lot of flexibility in it. But so you need to know the best available evidence, and that could be RCTs. It doesn't have to be RCTs. In fact, many questions in medicine are not answered with RCTs. You need cohort trials. And certainly, uh, there is not going to be a single study of you, right? <laughs> <laughs> Unlikely, anyway. So you know, the, so the best evidence that a, that a drug works for you is an N of one trial, and so that's so the, there's all sorts of different levels of evidence that we have to consider. And then when we when we have the best available evidence, we then incorporate it with clinical uh, experience or clinical expertise, if you will, uh, which is really important. Uh, you know, a great, great example where uh, knowing the best available evidence isn't that useful. For instance. If you wanted to, uh, let, let's say you broke, uh, let's say you needed a hip replacement. There's not a ton of evidence around that. Like there's no, I'm not aware of any RCTs uh, around hip replacements. But, you know, what you really want is someone who's really good at it. So you want a technician, if you will, who's very good at doing that surgery. So whether or not there's, uh, and there's no doubt, I mean, you don't, you don't, all you need is an end of the only, you only need to do one hip replacement to realize that if you take out a, a hip that's really, really painful and is, you know, completely destroyed by osteoarthritis, it gets better. Now, you can have complications and all that sort of stuff. But in that case, it, we're not necessarily looking at evidence. What we're trying to do is, you know, find some information in regards to a, a person who's very good at it. And then the other aspect of evidence-based practice is, and it's a big thing that I like to talk about because in my experience, guidelines are remiss in talking about it, is the concepts of values and preferences, patients' values and preferences. You know, when, when we look at, you know, if, if we talk about, you know, statins or blood pressures or glucose medications, let's assume they reduce the chance of heart attacks by one or two or three or 4% absolute numbers. Well, that means the vast majority of people don't benefit. So we need to then have the patient chime in and say, uh, you know, it's, I need to know that evidence and I need to incorporate that into whether or not I want to take a drug, whether I want to be monitored, the cost, the side effects and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's that, that's the premise that I come from on a, on a hopefully a fairly regular basis to, to talk about evidence-based practice. And so one of the key things that we do is look for and create hopefully useful synopses of evidence because probably, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when this first concept came out, everyone said, well, you know, what we want to do is we want to make sure everyone can do critical appraisal. And that was an unmitigated disaster, <laughs> relatively speaking, because it takes a lot of work. I mean, as, as I'm sure you know. So something that you mentioned was the end of one trial for the audience. Can you explain that topic a little bit more? Yeah. So, so let, let's say there's a, let's say you have a migraine and, uh, uh, let's say I have a study that says 
acetaminophen is more effective than placebo for migraine. Then I get, uh, if I give you acetaminophen and your migraine doesn't go away, I can't go, well, it did because there's a study showing that it works. So an N of one is it, we may have evidence that it works in a population on average, but the only possible way to figure out if it works in an individual is to have you try it. And, you know, uh, so you can do an N of one at least acutely, but more often than not, N of one trials are done in chronic for people with chronic conditions where you randomize them over time to either on the drug, off the drug, on the drug, off the drug, or on the drug, placebo, or on the drug, and see if you can then show that when they are on that medication, they are better because that's ultimately the sort of, and in fact, it's actually the one of the highest levels, if not the highest level of evidence is if it works in you above and beyond what placebo does, then it's effective. So yeah, that's sort of what an N of one, and they can be blinded or they can be uh, unblinded, depending on whether or not you can blind the intervention. Okay. And that sounds kind of like, um, um, blanking on the term right now, uh, individualized uh, healthcare, individualized treatment plans. Well, well sort of, yeah. And depend, there's another thing that there's, that's a lot of, there's a lot of BS around is personalized medicine. or, or Yeah, but, but personalized medicine, yeah, has, has been, that term has been sort of taken away. In my mind, personalized medicine is exactly that, what we just talked about. But, you know, personalized medicine is often being taken up by the genomics people to say, what we can do is we can do genetic testing and figure out what exactly what medication would work for you and which one wouldn't and on all that sort of stuff. Even though it's a really, really cool area of practice and there's a, you know, a few, and I mean very few examples where knowing that aspect of personalized medicine is useful, we are I still think decades away from it being that useful. So when people talk about personalized medicine, I I'm sort of I think I'm agreeing with you is to say personalized medicine is how do you figure out if it's working for a particular patient? Because that's the that's sort of the the art, if you will, of medicine and what we really need to focus on because boy, we have a lot of people on a lot of medications. Some of them are great and useful, but boy, a lot of them are not. I noticed on uh the YouTube video that is on your page, uh, Bohemian Polypharmacy, was really, really fun, really interesting. But there are some stats on there that I had no idea about that really the number of uh, multiple medications that some patients are on and the effectiveness of some of them just doesn't seem as strong as I was led to believe previously. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, we see that in all sorts of training is that we, you know, you, you guys get trained to, uh, you know, that, that hypertension is bad, therefore it must be treated. Gluco high glucose is bad, therefore it must be treated. And, and you make the assumption that the clearly the evidence must be overwhelming that treating these things is, is effective. And the, so it depends on how you define evidence and it depends on the magnitude of it. And even, even in the terms, even polypharmacy is a bit of a, of a misleading term, to tell you the truth, because uh, if I said polypharmacy, that, that comes across with sort of a negative spin, I would imagine, to you. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah, and it's and it it sort of is meant to be that way, but it doesn't have to be because you could have polypharmacy. You could be on five medications, and they are the exact drugs you're supposed to be on. They are the exact dose and everything, and nothing wrong with it. And so, I've been working with a group recently, and and we've been talking about instead of using that term, maybe talk about medication overload, like being on ones that you definitely don't need, or the dose is wrong, or if you're on eight or nine, maybe they're interacting with each other. And maybe, you know, we've not, we can't figure out which one is working. So yeah, the, I think this, the, the, the approach that I've always had suggested with people, if you see people on a lot of medications, 
the best way to look at it is to go, and, and this is not to be a therapeutic nihilist, but to be, let assume that the patient, assume the patient doesn't need to be on the, do- the drug or that the dose is wrong. If you go in with that attitude and try to prove otherwise, you will find that a lot of medications are not needed. You might even find some medications that are needed or the dose is wrong. And I think if, if one does that and has that focus, if you want to be more, more often right in medicine than wrong, which I hope we do, go in with that approach because the, the, the evidence is overwhelming that uh, people are on many medications, often at the wrong dose, and they're not having the effect that they would have believed uh, that they, that they believe that they you know, would take them for. So it seems like this starts really early. This begins in medical school where our board exams, for instance, are based on medical society guidelines. And that's just how we uh, absorb the information at first. But possibly some of those are wrong. Is it an institutionalized problem? Um, What's some of the backlash maybe you've received from having some of these views from others in the field? Well, yeah, and I, I, I always find it fascinating that, that, that you do get backlash on it, you know, that, that there's a backlash that the concept that you should use the best available evidence, you should use a clinical expertise, and you should use patients' values and preferences. I, I, it, it shocks me that that should not be the case. But no, you're right. So, the, and, and in fact, we were, I was in, um, at a conference in Copenhagen in, in August, and we actually had a, a forum, if you will, set up by two, two medical students from Copenhagen. And the question they, they asked had to do with, you know, how much evidence appraisal, if you will, and, I, and like I said, I'm not even a big fan of that concept of evidence appraisal, but, you know, how much evidence should we be getting our students to look at? And they, they didn't get, they, they were quite honest, they said, we did not get much evidence assessment or evidence even how to look at it in their program. And there is a debate, and I, and I don't even know if there's even an answer to this the debate, but what do you do? Do you, right, at the, right up front, do you, you induce, you do, do you put in healthy skepticism into a first-year uh, medical student or a nursing student or a pharmacy student? Or do you, first of all, get them to look at the, you know, understand some of the concepts, learn some of the guidelines, and then tell them, eh, we were kind of kidding. Those guidelines may not be perfectly evidence-based. And I, I don't have a great answer. I personally think it should be a blend because the, the, the role for guidelines, it, it, you know, most guidelines, if you follow them, you will not end up killing everyone. Hopefully. That's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, and, and, and you'll help some, but you will do potentially a lot of harm and inappropriateness if you follow them to the exclusion of all the other principles around evidence-based practice. So, I mean, the best person to answer any of those questions would be to, you know, to talk to someone like yourself or, or people who are students to go, well, what would you rather have? Would you rather just have us tell you what to do and then you just do it? Or do you want us to help you understand how we answer questions and how we, how science and, and evidence evolves, realizing that you may not have time to do all this and often you just want to know what to do. So I, I don't have a great answer for it other than I think it's a blend. I think definitely right now we have more of the the first situation where we're we're just kind of taught this is what to remember, this is how it works, implement this rule, and not really how to critically assess the research. I, I still have problems myself when someone sends up a let's say there's an online disagreement and they post this research that proves their points, and I know that that's not accurate, but how to step by step go through it and pick apart which parts are being skewed to some way to to get that confirmation bias it's it's tricky oh it's very yeah it's very tricky and so one of the things that we try to get our students in our programs to do is 
I identify sources of, pe of people who could who are trustworthy. Uh, you know, for, that, that do these evidence synopses. We we do train. We do at least in the program uh, in the faculty of pharmacy and a little bit in the faculty of medicine here. We do train some a number of our students to know how to do. You know, if you give them an RCT, how to evidence appraise it, how to look at it look for sources of bias, how to put a synopsis together, and so on and so forth. And we do that with the total understanding that that may not be done. Every, they're not going to do that every day in practice. But they at least have to have the under, they have to know what goes on behind the curtain. Not perfectly, but enough that they can then converse in those issues. And then most importantly, I think as a, as a, if, if a person is doing, is practicing on a regular basis, you're not going to have time to go to you know, the primary literature for everything. But if you know how to look at a Cochrane review, if you know how to find that sort of evidence and how to look at it, that's a huge step above just following a guideline. And you need to identify sources like the Cochrane Library, which, you know, it's, is it perfect? Absolutely not. Is the stuff that we produce perfect? Not in a million years is it perfect. And nothing is perfect. But it's, you know, uh, people attempting to get the best available evidence. And then what, what I try and encourage in, in healthcare providers, whatever area you are in, you know, you're probably on a day-to-day -day basis doing 10, 15, 20 things every day. You know, in primary care, it's going to be different than if you're a cardiologist and so on. But if you're going to be, especially when you're involving patient care, you at least better have a reasonable synopsis or a reasonable idea about what the best available evidence says. And not, does it work or does it not work? But how big of an effect is it and how sure are we about it? And so to do that for the top 10 or 20 things in, in your practice doesn't take a lot of time. It, I, I can almost guarantee you that every one of those questions is someone who you could probably trust has done a review of that. And you just need to know how to look at it and how to interpret it. And if you're not taught how to critically appraise these in medical school, you might lose that ability because once you join, once you go into residency, have your own practice, you're very busy, you don't necessarily know how or want to spend the time to learn this as effectively as you would have if you'd been implementing the steps ahead of time, I'm assuming. So back, uh, I would agree that's probably a very important thing for schools to concentrate on more is how to critically appraise these trials. Yeah, no, I, I agree now, you know, that it's, it's, it's tricky because what it does is it sets up a lot of cognitive dissonance. And by that, what, what I mean is, yes, I know you just had an endocrinologist come in and say, these are the drugs that we use for diabetes. This is the first one. This is the second one, and the third one. And then we cut. And then when you look at the evidence, you go, yeah, but we're now study. You know, there's there's a number of studies showing that these medications don't reduce any important endpoints. Hmm. So then that's a struggle. There are clearly studies that show that some of them do reduce important clinical endpoints. Yet almost or uh, very, very rarely is that information given to you guys. And Really, we, we just want you guys to have a, a healthy level, level of skepticism. We don't want to make people cynical because that's just boring. But yeah, you know, we just want you to be uh, skeptical. Just go, I wonder if what you just told me is true. And, and that applies to everything I'm just saying right now. You know, it's not just, this is, it's not like I'm, I'm coming from, you know, the mountaintop and saying this is the way to do it. Be skeptical about everything that I'm saying. Um, and, and uh, but at some point you've got to build, uh, identify people who you can build trust in to say, you know what, I, I, their their agenda is not, uh, it's not uh, to get people on medications, and it's not to get them off medications. It's it's just to go, what do we know about it? And then once we have the best available evidence, all the rest of it is the skill set that you that we learn 
over time as we become, for lack of a better word, clinical experts in what we do. And science is supposed to be met with healthy skepticism while not falling into the trap of being a contrarian. So that seems like it's how things should be, but we don't always see that. No, and, and people take it personally. I, I, I've given up on taking things personally. Like, uh, if, if people get heated about whether or not a patient should be, take a statin or not, they've lost it. They, because, <laughs> you know, there's very few things that work in everybody. You know, I, I would, I would, you know, and, and we're not talking about emergency treatments or, we're primarily talking about chronic treatments and this sort of stuff where they're not life threatening. But, you know, if, if, if for, for instance, I mean, the, the, the one class of agents that, that I talk about on a regular basis that, that really work in virtually everybody is something like either local or general anesthesia. So it pretty much works for everybody. Now, uh, any so, but uh, as I'm sure you're probably aware, there are people who will go to the dentist and not want local anesthetics. Mm-hmm. I think they're nuts. But you know, maybe they 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 had an allergic reaction to it. They don't like needles, or they have a very high pain tolerance. And that's great. But that's a drug for which it's 100 percent effective. And I I would make sure that people realize that it's going to be very uncomfortable, and that they can always change their mind. But so even for a drug that that's that that effective, you still have to go. It's your decision uh, within reason. Obviously, you know, if someone says, yeah, you know, I'm going to have a heart transplant and I don't want general anesthesia, you know, the, that sort of person we're going to have to have a chat with because, you know, there's no possible way you can do it without general anesthesia. But when it comes to, you know, all of these, these other things, I, I think it's, uh, it's, and especially because most of the time we're not even the best available evidence doesn't suggest by any stretch of imagination that it works in everyone. For instance, a, a reasonable number to use, and I'm happy to sort of tell you where it came, came from, is if we treat everybody for all of the risk factors that we're talking about, blood pressure, cholesterol, and, and glucose, and those sorts of things, even if the evidence, even if we didn't look critically at the evidence, we're still talking at least 60 to 70% of people over a lifetime never get any benefit from treating those things. So that's the issue that we need to, to focus on because we can only reduce risk by so much. And for you to have a benefit, you have to, you would have had to have had that event because preventing something that was never going to happen is not a benefit. So would maybe uh, for the number needed to treat, I know there's a website, the nnt.com, I think it is. Would something like that be, or are you aware of that or another resource that's a very trusted resource for these types of numbers and statistics for the for the students to go check out? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And in fact, I'm part of it, the NNT, the, the, that website. So we I'm uh, involved in editing some of those things. And yeah, it, it's one of a number of very many useful websites. The, the, the problem I have, not with the NNT, the website, but the concept of an NNT is that an NNT doesn't give you all the information you need to need to have to have a discussion. So the NNT just tells you, you know, the numbers of people that need to be treated to benefit one. And often when I actually, there's actually some reasonable evidence that it's a poor way to describe evidence to patients. And by poor, I mean, it's not as useful as just doing other, other ways of doing it. Because if you, 
if I told you the the NNT is numbers uh, uh, needed to treat is ten, that means it's a ten percent absolute benefit. But you you have no idea whether the, the risk goes from ten down to zero, twenty down to ten, thirty down to twenty, or any of those sorts of things. So while it's useful to know the NNT and we we sort of put it into our sort of lexicon, if you will, I think a way better way of doing it is if you know, if I did nothing, what's the chance of something happening? And that could be the chance of heart attacks or strokes. Or it could be this, the chance of your strep throat getting better or the chance of your, your, your bladder infection getting better. And then if I treat, what does that change? So if you know the numbers of, if I didn't treat, what would it be? And if I did treat, you don't need anything else. That incorporates absolute numbers and you could figure out relative numbers and numbers needed to treat. And, and I think it's a useful discussion to go, if we didn't treat, your chance of having a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years is 10%. And if we treat, it goes down to 8%. Now, there are definitely people who don't even get that. So you have to sort of you know show the happy face icons, the people that have seen or maybe bar graphs and all that sort of stuff to help them understand that. But um, but that's all about trying to assess just like, you know, I don't know if you've had any experience, but if you try to explain, here's how you use an inhaler to a patient, you could be the perfect person in showing them how to use an inhaler. Then you ask them to do it and they don't even get it close. Yes. I've had to explain that many times. <laughs> yeah. So there's a big difference between teaching someone something and then having them actually learn it. I mean, there was a, there was a great cartoon. I remember the guy, you know, was, there was a dog sitting next to him and, and, uh, and a, and a person who he was talking to, and it says, I taught my dog to speak. And the person look, is looking at him going, like, within you know, incredul incredulity, whatever the word is. And he says, well, I taught him. I didn't say he learned it. <laughs> so it sounds like nothing's 100% and everything in context. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. And everything in the context of the best available evidence, uh, clinical experience or expertise and, and patients' values and preferences. And, uh, and as much as possible, it's, it's impossible not to, you know, have an emotional connection to all this. But I mean, I, I know people who get clinicians who are just frustrated or annoyed at their patients if they don't take warfarin when they've said, you know, I want, you know, I think it's best if you do. And that, that it should not be a source of frustration. I sh they should be frustrated if they've not been able to get the patient up to make a shared decision. And uh, we recently wrote a paper, myself and, and Glenn Elwin in, in uh, BMJ, EB, EBM or EB practice, I think, evidence-based medicine, I think. And the issue that we came up with is the only outcome that we should care about for the vast majority of things is that a shared decision was made. Now, we were being provocative to some degree, but... Not that much. I mean, if you've had a shared decision, you know, just, just here's an example. When you write a prescription, and this is ballpark numbers, and, you know, 30% of the prescriptions that get written don't even get to a pharmacy. Wow. That's pretty high. I would have had no idea it was that high. Yeah. And it, it clearly depends on the, on what we're talking, what area we're talking about. And sometimes it's appropriate. Sometimes it might be, you know, I, I, here's a prescription for an antibiotic. I'm not sure if you need it, but if you do fill it, you know, those sorts of things, but you know, and it doesn't matter whether it's 20% don't get there or 30%, but it's around that. And then, you know, then of the people who fill a prescription, you know, probably half of them are not going to be that are going to have varying degrees of adherence. So that we, everybody is, putting in their values and preferences. But as clinicians, I don't think we appreciate the nuances of that. And 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 we get we, we you know we give terms that you're not compliant 
as if you just as if, as if you're just you know we're gonna give you the paternalistic view of you know Mrs. Jones you really should be compliant with this is very important and and but she doesn't like taking it it does it upsets her stomach it costs too much there's too much monitoring it affects her life too much and so uh, Victor Montori who's come up to our we have a course here in Vancouver every year and he came up and spoke uh, four or five years ago and he's got a, a, a concept called minimally disruptive medicine. How do you do good quality medicine and not irritate the hell out of everybody? And, and it's a great idea. It, it's, it's not a great, it's, the term is tricky, minimally disruptive medicine, but it, I think it, it, it speaks for what it is trying to do is very few people literally go, you know what's going to be a good thing today? I'm going to the doctor. Or you know what? I'm going to go wait in line at a pharmacy to get my medications. Very few people go, now that's a high quality experience. Good point. And once more, thanks to the band Knights. That's Knights with two eyes and sun pedal recordings for letting us use the song So Into You off Knights' newly released album, Hellebore's Part 1. You can check them out wherever you stream music or click the link in the show notes to hear more on Spotify. So oh.